Well, good morning, and I, I want to thank you for uh, praying this last week for uh, Bobby and Marty and myself as we were uh, up in the Chicago area just briefly. Uh, the Lord has, has, was, was good to us and kind, as we know uh, He always is. We we'll continue to pray for Bobby and Marty as they're coming back uh, as we speak. So we ask for, for safety and travel for them. Uh, we're going to be taking a, a break here. Bobby has been leading us through 1 Corinthians for some time. Before we go into the next uh, section of that, we're going to spend time going through the book of Jude. Six of the next seven weeks we'll be working our way through, uh, through the, um, the letter of Jude. So you can be turning there with me. And I thought I'd start by sharing something with you that, I, that I've read recently. This is from uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner. Uh, Dr. Schreiner is a professor at the Southern Baptist Seminary. He's the professor of New Testament interpretation. I try to give you a little bit less of me here. Uh, and professor of uh, biblical theology there. Um, he, he wrote a commentary on the book of Jude. And he begins that with a quote. Uh, he, he shared this quote. The most neglected book in the New Testament is probably the book of Jude. And then he says, this assessment is probably accurate. And I read uh, two other uh, individuals make the same comment in their commentaries about Jude, the most neglected book in the New Testament. Neglecting a book of the Bible, that that could be acceptable if we found a book in the Bible that was outdated, if we found a book that proved to have information that no longer was relevant to us today. I wonder if anyone in here is going to suggest that such a thing could ever be true about any part of God's Word. I hope the answer to that is a resounding no. We know enough about the nature of what God has given us in this book to never go down that path. Uh, everything that he says to us in his word is immediately relevant and eternally necessary to us. So what that means for us for the next several weeks is that we're going to find ourselves, uh, apparently, on the cutting edge here. We're going to be a bit of, we're going to be trailblazers because we're not going to neglect the book of Jude, which is, I guess, the most neglected book in the New Testament. Um, so with that in mind, what I thought we would do to begin here is to uh, take advantage of the fact that this is a short letter. It's only 25 verses long. I'd like us to begin by just reading the entire letter, uh, something we don't often do but probably should do more. It's a very helpful experience. Uh, so with that in mind, if you are able, would you please stand with us for the reading of God's Word? This morning we'll simply be looking at the first two verses, but we'll read here verses 1 through 25. And it says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we pause now as we begin to work our way through this letter that you have preserved for us, and we pause and we thank you. We thank you for it. 
We ask, Lord, for the perspective that is yours. Uh, we ask for the perspective that will allow us to see that the things you've given us are for us today. Uh, that there is much that we need to hear and consider and be changed by. And so we ask, Lord, all the way through this study that you would provide those things. That you would soften our hearts. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. And that as you sanctify us by your spirit, you lead us over and over again to your word. So, Lord, feed us this morning through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that we've had a chance to hear it all from beginning to end, I'm going to read one more quote to you from Schreiner. It'll make more sense now that we've heard all of this. Regarding the notion of paying attention to Jude and the reasons why we need this, he says, we can also say that the message of judgment, did you hear much judgment going through this letter, warning of judgment, describing it. We can also say that the message of judgment is especially relevant to people today. For our churches are prone to sentimentality, suffer from moral breakdown, and too often fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. How timely is this in light of Sunday school this morning? He goes on, Jude's letter reminds us that errant teaching and dissolute living have dire consequences. Hence, we should not relegate his words to a crabby temperament that threatens with judgment those he dislikes, but rather as a warning to beloved believers to escape a deadly peril. Did you hear how we described what we tend in our day to do with things like this, words of challenge, words of judgment. He's warning us not to do that. He says, don't do what our, what our culture does today. Don't hear these words of disagreement and prediction of judgment and warning as simply one of two things. Simply telling us about Jude's crabby temperament. Are we learning here that Jude was a crabby individual and that's why these things are written? No. He also said that what we do is we, we, um, we engage in these things when we are simply threatening with judgment those that we dislike. Is that what Jude is doing here? We have, a, we have an un- unspoken agreement these days um, that if you like me, you will agree with me. If you like me, you will give no words of challenge. If you disagree with me, what that means is that you hate me. That's what that means. That is not the picture of love and hate that the Bible gives to us. And so Schreiner is asking us to hear Jude as we ought to hear uh, these words. These words are warnings to those that are beloved to escape something that is deadly. We do well to pay attention to that. Now one way to speak about this morning, I told you we're just going to look at the first two verses Uh, If you look over the first couple of verses, you might feel a bit of disappointment, like there's not much here. I don't think that that's the case. You could say we're we're going to look closely at author and audience. Uh, But as we examine those things, I'm I'm hoping we will do this, keeping in mind what he says in verse 24, the end of this letter, when he, he said in the benediction, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... Now, we're going to bring that up at several junctures in, in this study. This morning, as we learn more about this man, Jude, who is writing, 
and about how he views those that he's writing to, we're going to find that we are hearing from a man who is defined by something that he has been led to recognize about himself, about those that he's writing to. We find here three, what I'm going to structure our time this morning, three recognitions uh, that, uh, that are apparent to us as we see who this man is and who he says he is writing to. And so we're going to frame the time this morning uh, with this question. What does Jew's opening help us to recognize? There will be three, three things that we'll see. The first is we will see a recognition of Christ's lordship. Second, we will see recognition of God's calling. What, what is the nature of God's calling? What are the consequences of God's calling according to Scripture? And third, we will see a recognition of the world's dangers as he prays for those that he is writing to. So let's look at these together. We begin by seeing a recognition of the lordship of Christ and the significance there. And I think we see this emphasis as we hear Jude introduce himself to his readers. Look again at verse 1. This is how he introduces himself. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Identifying himself with one of these these uh, giants in the early church, James. He says, I am the physical brother of James. If that helps you to know who I am and to see my, my context. James, we know, uh, was, was seen as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, according to the book of Acts. Uh, Paul in Galatians 2.12 refers to James as one of the pillars of the church. And so Jude says, I am the brother of James. If he's the brother of that James, though, you know who else he's the brother of? You know, that means he's the literal little brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that means. He grew up in a household with the Lord Jesus Christ as his big brother, his his half-brother. If you are a younger sibling here this morning and you thought that you had it hard living up to older brother or older sister, you have a great deal of sympathy all of a sudden for the man who's written this letter. But that really begs the question to us, I think, why doesn't he identify himself like that? He, said, he, he, he takes care to say, I am the brother of James. Why doesn't he say, I'm the brother of Jesus? We know some things from the Bible about Jesus' earthly family. Jude would be a part of this family. He would have been in these descriptions. They're not particularly kind descriptions. They're not positive ones. One of those is Mark 3.21. You don't have to turn here. I'll ask you to turn to the next one. Mark 3.21 says, um, it is recounting uh, early in Jesus' ministry, and it says, when his family, when Jesus' earthly family, heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is the thought that his family had concerning him at that point in his ministry. Would you flip with me for just a moment back to um, John chapter 7? I'll read verses 2 through 5 of of John 7. The context here is Jesus has just gone from having a great number of disciples, those following him, listening to him. He's just gone from that to having a much smaller number number of disciples, because he has gotten very explicit with his words and said some very hard things. And so a lot of people have said, I can't take this anymore, and they've left him. 
And you remember that's when, when he turned to the twelve and said, will you leave me too? And, and Peter makes that great confession, where else will we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's just happened. All right? That was the response that his disciples had to him. But now we hear about what his earthly family, uh, how they responded to this situation. John 7, starting at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, again, this is his earthly brothers, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Doesn't sound so bad until we hear the diagnosis of the next verse, which says, For not even his brothers believed in him. It's helpful that it tells us that, because without verse 5, it doesn't sound so bad. They, are, they clearly display some sort of a recognition of the powerful works that he has been engaging in. And he's telling, they're telling Jesus, look, go, go to, the, to the big public festival, show yourself to the world. So in what sense is verse 5 telling us about the hearts of these, uh, of these brothers of his? Well, D.A. Carson writes something helpful on this, and I, I agree with him, and this has helped me. Here's what he Says, he says, we ought not to think the brother's skepticism extended to doubt that he could perform dazzling miracles. Otherwise, their challenge that he should perform his works of power in Jerusalem would be incoherent. But they, like so many of the superficial disciples in chapters 2 and 6, could not perceive the significance of what they saw. And therefore, they did not penetrate to Jesus' real identity and entrust themselves entirely to him. In other words, these are men, his brothers here, who have been impressed by the miraculous signs of Jesus, but whose hearts remain hardened against his message of his person and his work. The time goes on from there, and then something happens, and that is that Jesus dies, and then he rises from the grave. They see him in his death, and then all of a sudden, he is back. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that among the more than 500 individuals who saw Jesus face to face after he rose from the dead uh, was Jesus' half-brother, James. And this is a fundamental turning point in James's life. He's never the same. Now, we don't hear of such a situation for Jude, for our author of this, of this letter. But clearly... These events, the Lord uses to open Jude's eyes. He is never the same. So that now this man, who has thought of Jesus as being out of his mind, who who has refused to entrust himself to Jesus, now he speaks of Jesus and he calls himself a servant. I am a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, there's a word that commonly means servant in the New Testament. It's the word that we use to get our word deacon, diakonos. That means servant. It's not the word that Jude uses here to describe himself. He calls himself the doulos to Christu, the slave of Christ. This is the specific word choice of Jude. Now, here's what that means. The man who has the the opportunity to begin his letter by identifying himself, with his close relationship with Jesus physically. He does not start that way. Instead, what he does is he starts by emphasizing the privilege of, um, 
of the fact that rather than simply being his half-brother, Jesus is in fact his Lord. He emphasizes his submission to the Lordship of Christ. It's as if we can hear him saying, uh, yeah, I am the brother of Jesus, but it does not matter what my relationship to Jesus is if he isn't my Lord. If that's not true of me regarding this man, it does not matter what my relationship to him is. For us in this letter and throughout the New Testament, but in our context for this letter, the the distinction is going to be at work throughout uh, the pictures that he is painting for us. Uh, And you'll remember this next week, I hope, when we find in verse 4, Uh, that he specifically tells us that the intruders in this church are denying something fundamental. What are they going to be denying? They are denying Christ as Master and Lord. That's what they are denying in their speech and in their lives. It doesn't matter what my relationship is to Jesus if he is not my Lord. We could say very similar things about Uh, our relationship with Jesus today, which we fundamentally experience through the truths and the realities of Scripture as we believe them and as we live them out. We can say the same thing today. We can remember Jesus' words when he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? This was the question that he has for us. This is what we know about the author. This man, Jude, and knowing this about his past, knowing about how he is specifically choosing to think about his relationship to Christ, it only adds to the powerful effect of the letter as we're going to be going through it. Now, in the end of verse 1, he turns and he speaks of his audience. Who is it that Jude says that he is writing to? And as we come to this emphasis, we now will begin to see the recognition that he intends for us Recognition of the, uh, the nature and characteristics of God's calling. Because this is the way that he refers to his audience. He says they are simply two words. They are the called. This is who he's writing to. To the called. But it's interesting to see the way that he wrote this. Uh, those words, in, as he wrote them, are far apart from each other. And you have inside, in between the and called, you have two descriptors put in such a position that intentionally tell us what's the nature of this calling? What are these called people like? And we find two of those descriptors. They are loved and kept. That's who they are. The first of those is attributed to God the Father, loved, and the second to Jesus Christ. Loved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. So we could say this. Here's who he's written to. His audience is the loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ called. That's who he's written to. Uh, The way we choose to word it in our English Bibles can vary in in several ways. If you have the the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's the simplest way I've seen. And I really appreciate the way it puts it. It simply says that his audience, these called, they are loved by God and kept by Christ. Loved by God the Father, kept by Christ Jesus. Now think with me for a moment about the two, the two descriptions there, loved and kept. Those two words have some things in common with each other. They're both a particular form of those verbs that show a completed action in the past that has ongoing effects in the present. They are loved. This is a perfect tense. They are kept. 
completed in the past with an ongoing effect in the present. It's important. They're also passive, which means these are not things that the audience is doing. This is what God has done to them. They have received love and keeping as they are seen as the called. And I pause on that for, for a reason. I think it's important for us to understand how Jude is choosing to describe this audience and what it means for them to be called, because it helps us to feel the force of that description. Without that, we can often come to hear him, in this case, speak of the called and think of it as something like an invitation. He's writing to the invited. Is that what he's saying here? But when you hear it with the two descriptors that he chooses to include, it makes it clear he's talking about something very different from that, very different from an invitation. There is such a thing in Scripture as a general call of the gospel that God sends out legitimately to all men in all times. And if you would like, you can think of that as a sort of an invitation. Although it's stronger than that, it's a command. It's maybe more of a summons to come before the Lord. But much more commonly, when the Bible talks about God's call, it's doing it like this. It's not speaking of an invitation at all. It's talking about, rather, a powerful act of God, an act that has an effect, an act that is effectual, and by which he actually, far more than simply inviting a people, he actually, through his call, renews and enables sinners to put their hope and their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe upon his Son. There's a lot of places where we see the called described in these terms. But let me give you four of them to write down or just to hear as as we're thinking through this together. The first two that I'll give you we find in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those... So try to find this parallel. There is a comparison here, a parallel between the first and the second part of the verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... Do you hear how he uses the second half of that sentence to restate the first? All things work together for good. For whom? For those who love God. Let me put it another way. For those who are called according to his purpose. Two verses underneath that in verse 30, we hear these words. Describing what God has done in his plan of salvation for his people. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He is speaking of his active work in the lives of his people. The third place that we'll read is 1 Corinthians. So we went through this quite a while back because we're in chapter 1 here. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24. Paul describes the gospel and its effects. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the gospel message. That we have sinned against God, are deserving of eternal wrath and judgment. God in his mercy has sent his son to stand in the place of sinners. And this happened when he bore our guilt on himself as he died slowly on a cross, crucified to death. That's the gospel. And he says, that's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified. Now, what's the effect of that preached message? Well, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's a fairly powerful contrast. There's responses to the gospel. Some stumble over it, some mock it, but others hear it and say, that is the power and wisdom of God right there. Who are the ones who do this? He says, it's not these uh, Jews who stumble and Gentiles who call it folly. It's those who are called. This is the, the way that they are described. The fourth place we'll, I'll just share with you quickly is at the end of the New Testament. Revelation 17, 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him, and here's a threefold description of those who are with the Lord Jesus, those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Called and chosen and faithful. I see these as clear descriptions that when the Bible speaks of the called, it's speaking not just of people who have been summoned by God, but of people who have been acted upon by God. They are not the same as they were before He called to them in this way. And for us this morning, it's, it's fortunate because our passage even clarifies the acting upon by God. How are they acted upon as they are, as they stand as the called before God? They are loved and they are kept. This is the nature of this calling. Now, here's why this is so important for us to understand this morning before we continue to go through the book of Jude. There's two reasons. This is going to be a letter, as we have seen already, of exhortations and warnings. If I am not clear about what verse 1 says, if I'm not clear about who Jude is writing to, I am vulnerable to misunderstanding what Jude is doing with these warnings. And I will misunderstand verse 21 when Jude will say, keep yourselves in the love of God. I will misunderstand that. We have to be conscious of the dynamic that is at play in this letter. We are kept, verse 1, by a God who is, verse 24, able to keep us from stumbling, able to present us before him blameless. And we'll say much more about this when we get down to verse 21, but we need to think carefully about what this tells us about the nature of perseverance. We are a church who affirms the reality in Scripture that God's children persevere to the end. I think it's a doctrine much better stated to call it the preservation of the saints, and for this very reason. When we think of, when you think as a Christian, of the promises that you have in Scripture concerning your perseverance in faith to the end, you have to understand, we must understand that our endurance as believers is not due to something about us. And at times we should probably say it more provocatively than that. Maybe like this. It is not true that you as a Christian, it is not true that you are somehow incapable of falling away from Christ. The Bible does not say that you cannot fall away. It says that God will keep you. That's what it says. Do you hear the difference between those things? It's a crucial difference. My preservation is not a given because of what has happened in me in the past. 
It will happen because God has made promises. And what we find in places like this where we hear warnings and exhortations is that God's work in preserving me actually is that. It is work. He works through my life to keep me with him, to keep me walking with him, to keep me repenting and turning back to him when I stumble. And we find that one of the means he uses to do that, one of the means he uses to keep us, is that he warns us and exhorts us in Scripture. And his sheep hear his voice, and we hear his warnings, and we tremble. We see these warnings here. We see them in the book of James. We see them in Hebrews. We see them in Second Peter. We see them in statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels. We must take care how we hear the warnings of those passages. And in this case, how we're going to hear and understand the warnings that he will give. Notice, explicit warnings issued to people that are declared to be safely loved by God. This is the tension. Now, those warnings aren't the only thing that we need to read in Jude coming up forward here with a careful understanding that he's writing to the called, those who are loved and kept. We have to keep that in mind as well as we hear Jude's emphasis on our human efforts. If we forget that these are people who are loved and kept by God, then we will be prone to leave God out as we read his, uh, Jude's emphasis on our work and our effort. He will say in verse 21, build yourselves up in your faith. He'll say in verse, that was 20, in verse 21 he'll say, keep yourselves. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How am I to understand that command? I read someone put it this way. I appreciated this. He says, Jude, by stressing God's supernatural calling, reminds the readers of the efficacy of God's grace. And this leads us to verse 2 and what we will see in verse 2. We're going to be led to a recognition of the reality of the world's dangers. The dangers that are presented to believers, loved and kept by God as we walk through our lives. He gives in verse 2 a prayer. This is his introductory prayer, common feature of, of letters in that time. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love. When he, when he says, when he prays that those things would be multiplied, that is an indication that these are things they already have. These are things that are already there. The word means to increase, to grow, to multiply in that way. You don't grow in that way what is absent already. Zero times anything is zero, right? So he's appealing, asking God that what God has already granted to these people, that this would continue to grow and thus would meet the needs that they have as they walk through these trials. But they already have them. Mercy is already theirs. It's theirs in Christ. There's a very interesting observation when we think of his prayer for mercy here. I was surprised to see this. Um, I tend to just come to the place where I brush over the introductory prayers like verse 2 because they're in every letter and they generally sound about the same, right? So there's really no significance. Uh, we can easily fall into that sort of a, uh, sort of a thing. And there are, there are a lot of prayers that are repeated in the beginning of the New Testament letters. But mercy is not one that's often repeated. 
praying uh, at the beginning of these New Testament letters, praying to God for mercy, happens four times in the New Testament. It happens in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 2 John, and here. Those are the only times that the author prays for mercy. And what's, what is interesting about that is you look at those four books, all four of those letters are written in the context of severe challenges by false teaching. These are people who are in danger in that specific context of some form of false teaching. And in response, the author prays to God for God's mercy. Now, when I think about that, I have a couple of, of reactions to that. One of them is comfort. I do feel comfort to notice that because it's simply a reminder that God is a God who grants mercy in times of need. He equips us in the moment as we have need, and that is comforting. But the other thing I feel, and and my reaction to that realization that's even more strong, is one of concern. Or you could maybe say, um, I feel a heightened sense of urgency when I hear this. That these are people in the context of false teaching, and the author feels the need to pray for mercy upon uh, these brothers and sisters. I hear that and I think, well, apparently, I'd better not view the warnings that are coming up and shrug them off as not a threat to me. I better not think of them as something that I I cannot potentially fall into myself or even begin to engage in myself. Because when the biblical author wrote these things down and gave these, these condemnations and warnings, they sensed the need to pray for God's mercy upon those that were going to get this letter. It makes me think of the very sobering warning of of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, when he said, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Boy, isn't that something for us to spend time thinking about? That this is something that can happen to us. I can reach a place that feels very safe because I think I'm standing firm. And in that moment, I need to take heed, lest in my confidence and pride I fall. I hear that with this prayer for mercy. I'll never forget a conversation that I had in the past with a friend. We were part of a group that was studying the book of Second Peter together. And you'll see as we go through this, Second Peter and Jude are very, very similar, uh, writing about some of the very same issues and even using the same language in a number of places. Not exactly the same, but a lot of the same warnings and, and uh, dangers present. So we were studying Second Peter, and we just finished the, the time. We'd, we were in the context of these descriptions that are coming up about the false teachers. And there was a lot we talked about, but predominantly we were taking note of the popular figures today that sound very much like these people. Oh, I see where this is happening today, down in Houston and over here. Boy, isn't this terrible? We need to do those things. It's one of the reasons he gives us these descriptions. But I was talking with my friend after it was finished. Um, he, had been, he had been kind of quiet during the, the time uh, and he said to me afterward, he said, you know, um, as I was reading this, getting ready for this morning, um, I just kept reading over the descriptions. Um, 
and reading that these are people who uh, are found to be among you in the church. And he said, it, it, uh, I couldn't get past the terror of it because the thought occurred to me, I'm in the church. Could this be me 15 years from now? Could this be describing what I am going to come to be? Um, it was a humbling moment because, I'll be honest, my thoughts had not gone there once that morning. I, that had not occurred to me. Uh, to see not just the call to be on the guard against this when it comes up, but to see the warning that none of us are, are incapable of such departures. It was powerful. But I think we were doing that morning what we all are very quick to do, and that is to read and apply to others. Read and apply to others. But we are not immune to the sorts of lies and sinful paths that were warned about in this letter. And it seems that Jude agreed with that, because when he prayed for these readers, he sensed the need to pray for God's mercy upon them. He also prays for peace and love for his hearers. And those prayers also fit very well with what seems to be going on in this situation that the letter is addressing. They are in need of peace, because those who have crept in unnoticed are causing division, verse 19 says. And verse 16 says they are grumbling everywhere they go, which we know is such a contagious sort of affliction. They need peace as they go through this trial. They need love, because those who have risen up among them are caring only for themselves. They are claiming to be shepherds, and yet all the only people they're feeding is their own mouths acting very selfishly among the flock in verse 12. This is a people in need of love. You hear the way his prayer responds to the very struggles that they're in. And can you hear that this is a prayer prayed by someone who loves them dearly? He knows what they're going through. He's concerned. He loves them. He is not in a bad mood when he writes this letter. He is full of godly concern for his brothers and sisters. And so out of that concern, out of that love, out of an overarching desire for the honor and glory of the name of Christ to be preserved, if this goes wrong, think of the display that this church puts, that these people put out there for the world. It's out of a deep love that Jude is writing this letter. And a desire to encourage them. We'll see next week what he says about exactly what's led him to write this letter in this form. But what we see already in the first two verses is that we're hearing a man who has learned firsthand about the necessity of submitting to Christ as our Lord and our King. Not someone that we're simply close to, but someone that we bow before. We're hearing a man who encourages by reminding, in this case, reminding that God is firmly holding his children in his safe grip. We have to start with that confidence in the power and love and faithfulness of God. And we're hearing from a man who loves them in such a way, this is so helpful to me, that, that he acknowledges the reality of the dangers that we face. 
and on all sides. The, the Bible is so much more full in its perspective than we so often contend to be. It's what I love about the New Testament letters as they're written. How clearly they are written with reality in mind. You never read them and get a sense that the focus is simply on earthly realities. But at the same time, those earthly realities are always acknowledged. And you never read and get a sense that they're writing simply about heavenly spiritual realities. And yet, everywhere, an eternal perspective is present. Are you and I prepared to live out the week ahead of us with just such a full-orbed perspective like that? Mindful for ourselves, for our family members, for those the Lord's put in our spheres. Mindful of the real temporal needs and struggles that exist around us. Even as we live with the real spiritual dangers in mind. The real eternal consequences in mind. And living before the face of the real heavenly audience that sees us from his throne at every moment of our day. How easily do we let one of those realities blot out the other? In the weeks to come, we will continue to see through that full-orbed lens. And just like his original hearers, we will be the objects of God's loving care as we do this together. Because he will be guarding us through his word. As we hear him, and we look ahead to what he's going to say of this God, that he is able to keep us from stumbling. As we hear those things and we live under the, the, the realities of them, we trust them. What we find is that God is equipping us to lead a stable life. A life of stability. I'll close by reading out of 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. He's just warned of some of the very dangers that we've heard in this letter. And he says there, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the great protection that we are given as we are led through our lives by the wisdom of the Word of God. And if the Lord allows us time, this is what we will see together as we work through the book of Jude. Would you pray with me? Father, we we love you and we thank you. Lord, we are a people, by your grace, who do have a sense of the absolute necessity of your Word. It is food for us. And yet for everyone in here, it's true as well that we, we, we live in ways often that fail to demonstrate the reality of that. We fail to live with you in mind, with your promises that give us hope and joy. And so we live hopeless and joyless. We live ignoring your warnings your exhortations so that we are comfortable and at peace in times when we should be very uncomfortable and not at peace at all in the way that we are walking. Lord, help us as we go through this letter. And Father, as we live our lives uh, as your children, 
as we read on our own, as we talk together, as we, as we experience life as your body. Lord, increase in us a humble submission to you and a humble adoration of Christ. We love you and we thank you for him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction this morning. And I'll just reread for us the last two verses of Jude, which say this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed.